Absolutely, yeah. It's. I mean, it turns everything on its head because there's a distinct sound. Three, two. I'm Father Paul Abernathy, and you're listening to Longest War. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Nick. Really appreciate it. So, Father Paul, as it were, I've not known another veteran that has gone from combat in Iraq and Afghanistan to the priesthood. So we're going to get into that a little bit. Can we start out with your background? Like what, where you're from, what motivated you to join the Army? Sure. I grew up in a suburb outside of uh, Pittsburgh, a low-income area, actually, uh, in South Viet. town was called Cuddy. And, you know, when I, when I grew up, I was really raised by my grandfather, who's a World War II vet. He was a combat infantry World War II vet. His father served, World War I veteran. My mother uh, was also in the Army, which is where she met my father, who was also in the Army. I was born in Fort Carson, Colorado, but I've been in Pittsburgh since I was nine months old. And I think, you know, growing up in that household, there was such a very, very devout Christian people with a very strong sense of, of service and civic duty. You know, to be really raised by that, to see, you know, my grandfather continue to live that sense of civic duty out, even in civilian life, made a very uh, significant impression on me. And when I was growing up, my family did a lot to, you know, raise me with appreciation of really a, a love for this country. You know, most of my summers were actually spent at Gettysburg one time or another to really get a sense of self-sacrifice, especially in the context of setting other men free. Those men who laid their lives down uh, so that so that I and my family could be free made quite an impression on me as a young man. And, and so uh, with all of that, coupled with a sense of adventure, desire to see new things, you know, really uh, compelled me into the uh, army. It was never really a question. When I was old enough, I was really excited to enlist. So great-grandfather, World War One. What branch do you know? Army. Army. Grandfather, World War Two. Army. Mm-hmm. Mother, Vietnam-ish era? Yeah, the, the era, though she didn't serve in country. Okay. And she was army as well? Yeah. And your father was army? Yeah. So an Abernathy relative has been in, in the army for every conflict since World War One, basically. That's correct. So you wanted to continue that lineage? Yeah, I couldn't imagine breaking it. I'll get a little bit ahead of ourselves, but um, do you have any kids? I have a son now. You have a son. Mm -hmm. Would you encourage him to be the next Abernathy to join the military? That is such a great question. You know, it's it's one that I really, really wrestle with because I, uh, you, you know, I'm grateful that I did serve my country, but it was in the context of that service that I saw the very worst of humanity, the very worst that this world has to offer. It was also in that context I saw the very best of humanity and the very best that, that this world had to offer. But, but I've seen, you know, the effect that war had on so many people. It would be really hard for me to watch my son go to war. And, and, I, and I think having had now that experience in my own life, it's only made me that more dedicated to peace because it's not something that really I would wish on anybody. Uh, you know, certainly there are so many vets that come out and do so many great things, but I've seen men broken by it and, and destroyed by it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and that, that's really uh, made an impression on me. How old's your son now? He is 
one month. One month. Oh one month. wow! Yeah, he's brand new. Brand new. Yeah, so you've got a while. I've got a while. You've got to a while to that. figure yeah. it out. <laughs> that's right. Okay, so at least it won't be under the current administration that's, that's, when you have that's, to make that decision. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I've told friends they are like younger folks. They're like, I'm thinking about joining. I was like, I'd I'd wait a few years. Yeah, let's wait a few years. I'd that's wait right. to see how this plays yeah. out. Yeah. All right. So you joined in. 2001? Well, actually, uh, I enlisted in the uh, Army Reserve in 96, is 96. When I when I signed the paper, yeah. Was when I signed the paper. So I went to I went to basic in uh, 97. So what was basic training in 97 like? Could they hit you still? <laughs> well, they, you know, they couldn't hit you. They were they would uh, certainly beat your head with the with the big green hat, yeah. that's for sure. You know, I think that, uh, you know, in 97, it was an interesting time because, you know, there were still, I think those remnants of the old army were a little, they were there a little bit. You know, I know that when uh, when I certainly got to my unit, there were guys who were, you know, they were just getting ready to retire. But, you know, Vietnam era, the you know, the first sergeants and sergeant majors, you know, that, that went way back. It was, though, an interesting time because I think, you know, the the big talk in that particular period was Bosnia. You know, and, uh, and, oh, yeah. and Kosovo was, was mentioned every now and again. But, uh, but the thing that was so interesting to me about being in at that particular period is I think we were still in the wake of the Gulf War. And, and what that really did was, I think, put this great misperception on us about what war really was. I mean, the idea that we could defeat this battle-hardened enemy in 72 hours, you know, had, had you know, I, I think really built some, you know, believe it or not, uh, naivete. Absolutely. In the army, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they just dropped their weapons and ran. That's right. right. Most of the casualties, I don't, I'm probably misspeaking on this, but I, my gut tells me like most of the casualties are like friendly fire incidents right. on our side, you know? Like yeah. it wasn't, there was no real sustained combat there. Right. So on 9-11, I was in the 10th grade and I remember uh, my history teacher, Coach Seal, one of the greatest teachers I've ever had, profoundly impactful on my life. And it was like two days after 9-11, he talked about us getting ready to go to Afghanistan or wherever it was. And he was like, he's like, don't worry about it. You know, I've talked to guys. And what happened in Iraq last time, Yeah, we are so much far beyond that, it'll take even less time to wipe this out. Wow, it's amazing. And I was like, yeah, oh, that's something to be hopeful for. Mm -hmm. And then less than three weeks after 9-11, October 7th, 2001, was when OEF officially began. Yeah. It's been 16 years. Yeah. 16 years. Yeah, you know, I, I, I have a very similar story. It's actually when we were, uh, we were at Assembly Area Hammer, on the border of uh, of Iraq, we were in Kuwait, waiting to cross over in 2003. And uh, you were in the first wave. Basically. Yeah, yeah. I crossed into Iraq the first day of the ground war in 2003 with the Army's Third Infantry Division, and, and there was this uh, there was this sergeant major, this command sergeant major who who uh, pulled the battalion together to talk to us. And this is exactly what he said, word for word. He said, "This isn't World War II. This isn't Vietnam. This is Iraq. And all I need from you is five good days. Five days, and this will all be over." That phrase, five good days, you know, it stuck with us. And, and at first it was, you know, our battle cry, but it very quickly became, you know, our sarcastic display of our disenchantment with the whole experience. Five yeah, good days. Five days. It took five days to just kind of figure out what was going on. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. I mean, there was the shock and awe. Right. And the promise of that. And and that's how it was framed to people at home, too, because I remember right. watching TV and remember the shock and awe specifically. Like, sure. Oh, there were phases. And I've always I've said this like 10 times through my life. It's like, well, this thing can't last too much longer. Right. And then I get to Afghanistan for my first tour in 06. I'm like, well, this thing can't last too much longer. Right. And then I get there at the beginning of 09. I'm like, well, this thing can't last too much longer. And then I leave at the end of 09. Like, for real this time, this thing can't last too much longer and here we are seven years later still in there yeah absolutely i don't think it, none of us saw this coming no not at all 
And the training, I joined in 03. We'd been in Afghanistan a little while. Hadn't, I don't know if we'd actually got into Iraq yet. So like, and I'm sure it was same with you. It was still like this Cold War basic training absolutely. mentality. Like about fighting Ivan That's and the Ruskies yeah, and that absolutely. kind of stuff. That's how we were trained. It was not, there was no counterinsurgency. No, nothing. There was none of that stuff. No IEDs, nothing. No. So like training, I mean, I guess it was good if another Cold War <laughs> yeah. thing had kicked off another boss near Kosovo, but it really did nothing to get you ready for no, no, Iraq. No, that's right. That's right. So you get to Iraq as an engineer. Right. What was your primary responsibility? You were, what was your rank at the time? Uh, I was a, I was a, I was a sergeant. And then uh, in, in, while I was over there, I was promoted to staff sergeant. Yeah. So what does a staff sergeant engineer do during the initial invasion? Well, you know, a, a whole lot of the time it was, it was driving forward. We on the uh, third day of our, when we crossed the border on the third day of the invasion, we, our company was transferred to the first Marine Expeditionary Force because the Marine Corps didn't have enough assets to get to Baghdad. So we, uh, you know, we tagged along with the Marines for the ride. You know, there were gun battles along the way. But I, uh, when we got to Baghdad, you know, our company had to put in two bridges on the Diala River because uh, one of the bridges was, was hit by artillery during the assault. And uh, once that happened, you know, we, we set up a checkpoint. You know, and then very quickly the uh, insurgency settled in, you know, and uh, the rest is history. So you're doing basically infantry stuff most of the time. With big awkward vehicles yeah and little <laughs> that, bitty roads yeah that that was the whole thing you know those those vehicles that we had because we had those engineer as, engineering assets that we had to drive north it was uh it was very cumbersome and it was a very very difficult endeavor so this was pre-ied at that point right yeah like that's there was right. you didn't have to do too much like route clearance or anything no surprisingly you know uh surprisingly we didn't in, in fact so much so that it, it began to seem to us, and there were rumors that we heard that the, uh, that the Iraqis designed it so, that the idea was to allow us to come in because of the lessons that they had learned in the first Gulf War, that, that it would be much easier to hit us, you know, as an insurgency than it would be to stand, you know, in the conventional military way and fight against us. So much to our surprise, we didn't have to clear uh, any obstacles on our way. We did not. Perhaps others had a different experience, but we sure. didn't. Yeah. But once you got settled in, that's when that's when it all started. Fun, so to speak, begins. Yeah, and in fact, I remember really the insurgency kicking off in full force in about uh, really early June of 2003. What we came to learn after the fact was that there was a month period where there were things that were happening. You know, there were there were uh, sniper fire sort of assassination style techniques but but the real the real thrust of the insurgency that that particular month was really about them learning they were watching us and uh, they were learning how we moved and 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 what we moved with they were learning the patterns of our movement they were studying our base camps you know how we set up our perimeters and defensive positions how we handled security how we selected which iraqis we were going to use to work with us on base you know there, there was an enemy that adapted very quickly an enemy that that was a quick study that learned and uh, and then really implemented implemented their strategy based on that learning in a very effective way. So basically, what you're, what you're saying is they studied our standard operating procedures and then developed their own based off of ours. That's exactly what they did, and did it very effectively. Do you remember the first time your unit yourself made contact with the enemy, got shot at? I do. It was uh, actually outside of uh, in Nasiriya in Iraq. Now, the thing that was really interesting about that is that when we when we got to that particular city, we had heard along the way that people were telling different stories about, you know, having contact with the enemy, but we hadn't seen anything up to that point. 
And uh, we, we'd seen, you know, I, what, I, what I really remember was uh, whenever the, the first uh, Marines made it up to Nazaria, that uh, very quickly we found out that there was heavy resistance there. And, and uh, whenever we first uh, found out about it, we were, we were stopped on the side of the road next to a Humvee that was just completely shot to pieces. That was a, you know, that was a, that was a tough moment because, you know, we had this, you know, this image of American superiority. The fact that one of our vehicles could be shot to pieces was a very sobering moment. You know, when we got into the city, there was plenty of gunfire gunfire plenty of plenty of shooting going on one of the things i do remember though was that there was a convoy in the city that was uh, completely shot to pieces facing the wrong direction i remember that very vividly and uh and it not making any sense to me of course after the fact we found out that that was uh what would be now known as jessica lynch's company oh wow that, yeah that had gotten lost it, you know they had drove through accidentally drew through the city and made two turns from what i understand on the other side of the city before trying to drive back through and uh, when they drove back through is when the enemy realized that they were lost you know they they didn't get shot on the way through the city the first time it was on the way back through that they got hit because uh, at that time the iraqis realized that they they were lost and that they were uh, easy prey oh my goodness so you guys like right in the aftermath of that yeah it was right, a few it was, hours or so you know the i can't tell you what the timeline on all of it is but it was right after that in fact because it was uh it was all still fresh i mean it was all still right there yeah so you hear about other units making contact were you guys like full of piss and vinegar like oh man i can't wait till we get our shot <laughs> and then it gets there and you're like whoa yeah you know it's uh it's interesting because as soldiers you know we, we uh you know i think there was this the culture was to really get psyched up about this i do remember that uh, before it actually happened, you know, there were times, there were moments where, you know, we, we were really filled with adrenaline to be followed by moments that uh, were almost paralyzed by fear. This idea about really having to go into this and, uh, and having to, to wrestle with that reality. But, uh, but I can tell you this, is that the, it's just when you hear that first bullet, that's when the world becomes a very different place. It's that first bullet and the idea that this is, this is live. It's an indescribable sensation, you know, uh, in, in the way in which, you know, for me, at, at the very least, it just it changes the whole perception of the world. It did. Absolutely, yeah. It's, I mean, it turns everything on its head. Because yeah. there's a distinct sound of the crack of an AK-47 coming in your direction. Yeah, like you, you know exactly. Yeah. And there's that split second pause of, is that what I think it is? Yeah, ex that's exactly and right. And then you realize what it is, and then you react. But there's, right. a, there's that second that lasts an hour in uh -huh. your mind. Yeah, the it's disbelief. A, it's a surreal yeah. experience. You know, it's yeah. like this can't. Like I'm a kid still. Can this right. really be happening? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. You know. So how long did that tour end up lasting? Well, we were overseas for a year. Yeah, so we were we were overseas for a year. So five days plus another three sixty. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it ended up being. Yep. Mm -hmm. Who who replaced you? Who was that second? Was fourth ID came in after? That's that? exactly right. Fourth, fourth ID. ID. Yep. Mm -hmm. What was it like coming back? It was great to to leave, but what I I do remember very vividly, you know, our, our very last base camp Anaconda in uh, Balad, Iraq. I remember very vividly that the day that we left, as we were driving out, there was a company driving in. And when I was going home, I really, at that very moment, I realized that it was good that I was going home, but uh, I was only going home because somebody was taking my place. Right. That's what I really realized in that. It made that experience, you know, very bittersweet in that moment. I mean, I just, I can never erase that image of those guys that are coming on 
the base camp right when we were leaving. And so, you know, for me, it was, you know, it was, it was great to come home. I, I, I think though that, you, you know, there wasn't a, you know, a sense of peace or, you know, or a sense that it was closure, I would say, that I was expecting, you know, when we were coming home. Right, because there didn't look to be any immediate end to the thing. Right. Did you talk to your grandfather much about it when you got back? Yeah, we we did. You know, one of the, 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 the greatest experiences that I had with him was right when I got back, I, it was just a few months later, he asked me to go with him to the dedication of the World War II Memorial in uh, Washington, D.C. And, and it was great because we had, uh, you know, we both had, you know, veteran caps on and, uh, and I had my army jacket on and, and it was a really beautiful bonding experience for us both. Now, I will say that my grandfather had a very strong sense of duty. You know, he was a Purple Heart recipient, Bronze Star recipient, you know, combat infantry, World War II. But he really hated war. In, in that, I, I think we really shared that in common. You know, we really, really hated war. Both of us, we, uh, I think both of us looked at the conflict in Iraq with regret. For him, I think he was really concerned that he would lose his grandson, either physically or, you know, mentally or spiritually to this, to this conflict that, in, in his view, didn't need to happen. What was really important to him was to make sure when I came home that I wasn't losing myself. And I, I remember one time sitting on the porch with him and I zoned out. I remember this. I zoned out and, uh, and I remember him calling my name. And when, when I, you know, when I came back to where I was, you know, looking at him and he really just, you know, asked me if I was all right and then started a conversation with me. And I, and I, and I came to find later that he did that because he was just really watching me, making sure that I, you know, could find myself when I came home. And he was really there for me in that way. And that was a, that was a very important thing. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of what General Eisenhower said when he was president. It's like, you know, no one hates war more than a soldier. Yeah. The soldier's seen the few, paraphrasing this, but a, a soldier's seen the futility and the stupidity of it all. Right. But in all fairness, like your grandfather's war, I think it's a lot easier to reconcile you know, killing Nazis right. than shooting Iraqi teenagers. You know, I'm not condemning anyone that served right. by any means. Like, I did two tours in Afghanistan, right? right. Like, I'm not, I'm not making any judgment on, like, the moral justifications of individual soldiers, right? right? But I think a lot of struggle for our generation has been this, just like in Vietnam, right? Like, right. there was no, like, you would ask, people would ask, like, what, how do we know when we've won? <laughs> right, that's you know? right. What is that? Do we need to score a certain number of points? Right. <laughs> like, how, do we, how do we do this? Mm -hmm. And World War II is pretty clear, right? right? And these were clearly bad guys. They were doing right. horrific things. Right. So you could come back and you could kind of detach from it and decompress. Yeah. And luckily you had your grandfather to help you go through that. Right. How old were you when you got back? 23. 23. And yeah. how much longer did you stay in the Army once you got back? So, I, I, yeah, I got home in March. My enlistment was up in July, so it was not uh, not that much longer, actually. So you enlisted in 96. You got out in 04? Yep. So that's like eight years. So you did two enlistments? Yeah. Well, in the reserve, it was one. It was a six and then two inactive ready reserve, but I never did the IRR because our unit was you called got active duty. Yeah. Had you not gone to Iraq, do you think you would have re-enlisted possibly? Yeah. You know, that's a great, that's an interesting question because um, I really might have. Because before going to war, you weren't necessarily opposed to the war, right? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I what I can tell you is, is that before uh, the war in Iraq started, w the war in Iraq really changed a lot of things for me because I, I you know, I, I just, I couldn't see 
really the need to go there and be there in that way. I mean, I, I really couldn't, even before when we were being deployed, I really was questioning that, you know, I, and I thought, well, but at least Saddam is a bad guy. That's what I was, you know, really telling myself. But of course, when we got there, the situation was so much more complex than, you know, anything we could have, that was portrayed to us on the television. And it just, I think, further validated my initial concerns about whether or not this war needed to happen. In coming, you know, coming home after that experience, the thing that I couldn't get past was, you know, our government, you know, in blatant disregard for thousands of human lives, uh, made this decision to send us there in where else would they send us? And, and that I can never get past. Sure. Okay, I want to fast forward just a little bit and then backtrack some. Yeah, sure. So you get out. Is that when you decided to go to seminary or? I actually went to graduate school first at the University of Pittsburgh to get a master's in public and international affairs. And it was after that experience that I decided to go to seminary. What was your undergrad in? Uh, international studies. From? Uh, Wheeling Jesuit University. Okay. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's Catholic school. Yeah. So you were pretty well versed on international affairs, right? <laughs> at like, that point, yeah. So even, did you finish your undergrad before Iraq? I did, actually. Okay, so I like did. in real time, you're kind of like, oh, <laughs> yes. I've read about stuff like this. Yeah, this that's is, right, yeah. This yeah. is nation building. This yeah, is uh, yeah, not going to go right. well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you go, to, you go to graduate school, international studies, and then what, what was the spark? To go to seminary? Yeah. You know, for me, when I came home from the war, I actually came home, which for us is in the, in the Orthodox Church and Orthodox Christians, we have, we start Lent, which for us is a season of repentance. We start it with Forgiveness Sunday. That's actually the, the day of the church has. And in that Sunday evening, we begin Lent with a service called Forgiveness Vespers. It's really beautiful because everybody who goes to the church asks everybody else in the church for forgiveness. It's a really healing experience. You know, having done it several times over, and it just so happened that when I came home, I uh, I didn't make it to Forgiveness Vespers because I walked in, I got into the door of my house right in the uh, the hour almost that Forgiveness Vespers was uh, was happening to inaugurate the season of repentance for us. And for me, I I you know as I reflected back on my life and experience, but that particular moment to realize that my uh, my my healing path, so much of it really began with this path of repentance that uh, the church had re was really you know revealing to me and and just the experience that i had you know in this life of repentance in the church and the joy that came from that the joy the healing that came from that you know the mercy the uh you know the the forgiveness not only that i received but you know that i saw others receive and the restoration that comes with all of it it was a very powerful experience in my life and and it was in that context that i started to really sense this calling you know it got to the point where i just couldn't ignore do you and i don't want to project this on you so if i'm way off base <laughs> let me know did any degree did you feel like you were balancing the ledger you know of uh, you did this stuff in iraq that maybe you had regrets about but you were like well i can get right this way you know what i yeah. mean like this will this will even the scales out with did that play into it at all? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really great question. I, I think that, you know, the idea of balancing the ledger, you know, probably did not have to do with the priesthood per se. You know, it, it probably did have to do with, you know, my life in the church to a degree because I, I really, when I came home, I, I really, you know, felt horrible about everything that happened over there. And, you know, and for me, being able to, you know, really get on that path of repentance to ask for forgiveness and then to find it you know i think 
although that didn't necessarily contribute to my, you know, my, uh, let's say my discernment into the priesthood, it certainly did for me in my life as a Christian man and what really is possible. You know, I tell people in my ministry now all the time because they come in, many of them, in a very hopeless situation. People, many of them, with very strong regrets about the things that they've done. I see that very often. And you know, I tell people all the time, you may not see uh, any light at the end of this tunnel, but I tell you, it is so. With God, all things are possible. You know, He makes sinners saints. He makes murderers evangelists. He makes prostitutes virgins. I mean, He does all of these things. That certainly is my experience. And the war was a, was a way in which, you know, uh, I really do believe the Lord in His wisdom uh, revealed. He, he took this experience and, for me, made it into a revelation of His goodness. And that is you know, a message that I really try to preach uh, every day in my ministry here. And you joined the anti-war movement when you got back. You joined Iraq Vets Against the War. Was that during grad school? You know, uh, my first encounter with uh, Iraq Vets Against the War was right probably before grad school, going into grad school. But, uh, but it, because there was, there was protests in, you know, the very first time I met those guys was at a protest in D.C. where you know, I was, should I go? Should I not go? I felt very self-conscious, but I thought if, if I do go to this, I should wear, uh, I should wear my, uh, military jacket. That's, that's what I did decide that I should really be honest about who I was, what I thought. And so I went down there on the mall in Washington, DC. I was walking around with this, with these DCUs on and in, uh, much to my surprise, I, I heard, uh, from behind me, Hey vet, and I turned around and there was this whole group of guys standing there. They were all dressed the same way. And I went over and I said, uh, and they acted like I knew that they were there, <laughs> that I had been looking for them. And, uh, and I wasn't. I had no idea that they'd been there. I, I went and talked to them and, and found out that, you know, there was a whole group of vets who were, had served overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan who were really against the war. And, 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 and not only from, you know, an ideological perspective, but, but so much of it informed by their experiences over there. And, you know, they were so kind and inviting, uh, so warm and dedicated. And, you know, I, I really appreciate about Iraq Vets Against the War is that, is that they were really, you know, if my memory serves me correctly, there were really three very important points that they were going for. One was to end the war, you know, peace in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the second was, you know, justice for uh, vets returning home to make sure that people were really cared for when they returned home. And the third is equity and reparation for uh, the Iraqis and the Afghans that, that suffered it at our hand. And you know, those three points really resonated with me personally because I thought it's so beautiful because we're, we're not just thinking about our lives. We're not just thinking about a political objective at ending the war, but it really is about, you know, helping people on both sides who had whose lives had been you know presumably impacted in many cases shattered by these events helping these people heal what a what an act of reconciliation right making all parties involved whole again right beautiful idea yeah it was powerful hopefully we can get there one yeah day. right we're just, right plenty to be done sure uh i imagine most of the protesters were civilians yeah how did they receive the veteran contingent oh you know what the respect was unbelievable i mean they 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 were so kind they were so respectful they really you know, admired us for speaking out against the war. And I have only, you know, really positive experiences. The anti-war protesters who were civilians, they were so kind, so gracious. So you do that for a while, you finish grad school, you join seminary, and then let's talk, you traveled back to the Middle East a bit. Where did, where was the first? Well, you know, I, I studied, um, in the, interestingly enough, before I went to Iraq, I studied at the University of Aleppo in Aleppo, Syria, 
Just really? for a summer, I did. And then when I came back from Iraq, I went uh, back to Syria, and I and I was at the uh, Patriarchate of Antioch, which is in Damascus, is the head of the Orthodox Church in Syria, and I was there for uh, two months. And then I, and then I went back to the Middle East uh, for a fact-finding mission in uh, Palestine, the Palestinian territories. And then uh, my final trip to the Middle East was to Lebanon for the consecration of some of our bishops. So you've had interaction with a diverse array of Muslims from different nationalities. That's true. Right? Now I kind of want to get into the meat of this, right? Sure. What role, it's not an easy question. Yeah. What role do you think religion has played in this war on both sides? I think, you know, here people really use religion to excite the passions, to excite, you know, uh, people's fear, to really, uh, to, to really encourage to war and, and I think even emphasize the difference that we have. You know, certainly there's differences in the Islamic world than there is in the West. I mean, there's no question about that. But one of the things that's really that I learned in my travels in the Middle East is that the real challenge is, is that, you know, it's it's not really religion. This isn't what people are killing one another over, but it's, it's a matter of, you know, political identity. That whenever people are marginalized as a result of their religious identity, that very often violence is a result of that. And that, you know, it's it's not about, you know, one man has one voice, one woman has one voice, one, one man, but it's about how we can manipulate these interests to serve, you know, broader interests in the West. And I think one of the challenges in the Middle East is that there is so much outside manipulation. I mean, one of the things that really s struck me, you know, that in, in, you know, in my time in the Middle East, certainly in the war, most of all, but even beyond that, that when we look at the conflicts and people say, well, you know, the Middle East, you know, they're fighting, they, they just fight. That's all they do. Fight, 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 fight. I mean, I can't think of any weapons that were made in the Arab world. I mean, I just can't. I mean, the millions of weapons that were in Iraq and they were made by European countries, the civil war in Syria. I mean, these weapons were not manufactured in Syria. I don't care if you're talking about bombs, if you're talking about guns, you know, and, and the thing is, is that people will say, you know, these guys are Islamist and these. But the truth of the matter is, is that at different points in this whole thing, we in the West have backed many different factions. And, and to me, it's a very clear indicator that it isn't about religion, that there's that it is about interest. It's about these other interests and how we can use religion to manipulate people to go along with these interests. This is a, this is a this is to this, I would say we've got to really gain more understanding about the Middle East, about the Arab world, about the Islamic world. I don't think that we have enough here. And I think that we're, we're basing a lot of bad policy decisions on poor understanding. And, and the final piece here is, you know, we have to pay attention to who we're really listening to. You know, I mean, I, I remember watching a lot of people, you know, on TV, they were all talking about what the Arab perspective was on things, but, you know, they were never Arabs. And, and I think that, you know, um, part of our work has to really be, you know, to, uh, to create these these uh to create these venues so that people can have a voice so that people can really share you know in in truth be told there's a lot of concerns that people have in the islamic world that are absolutely legitimate concerns that we cannot ignore just like in the black community there are many legitimate concerns that we we, we cannot ignore and so i think giving you know you know hearing those concerns and giving voice because because what happens is is that people go and they try to do things the right way they try to do things the legal way they try to do things in the united nations and the united states vetoes everything 
And so whenever they try to do things the way we want them to, and we teach them that it will have absolutely no effect, and then we wonder why, you know, violence occurs. I mean, we, we have to, we have to uh, really begin to listen and understand more. I think you raise a really interesting point that no one else has brought up on this podcast, at least before, that these were not Arab-made weapons, right? Right. They're some American-made weapons, <laughs> a lot of Soviet-made weapons. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'll come back to that point, but many people don't realize that Iraq, 110 years ago, was not a thing. Sure. Syria wasn't a thing. Right, right? Like that's these right. Weren't, these were dudes in 1919, I don't know, threw darts at a map yeah. and then drew some lines and that's said right. these are countries. Uh, a good example of that is Tunisia, right? So the Arab right. Spring, that was the first country. That's where it kicked off. Right. A few months later, Tunisia's doing just fine, right? Because right. it's got a national identity. Right. It, it worked through its issues and it can move on. Right. But when Syria and Iraq is this porous, unacknowledged border between the two countries with literally families split in half on one side or the other, sure. it's really hard for them to get over it. But going back to the weapons. It's all, I think, from the Western perspective, how these countries are serving our interest with, with, uh, with absolute disregard for, you know, their welfare. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, what's, what's the, the terrible thing about these proxy wars is that, you know, whether you're talking about the revolution in Iran or, or you know, the, the, uh, the civil war in Syria now, which we have plenty to do with, you know, the challenge is, is, that, is that in these conflicts, we portray them as, as barbarians without understanding the role, without, without you know, acknowledging the role that we played in you know, stirring this, this pot up and in, in finding different factions and exploiting them against one another, you know, um, giving arms to all sides you know, right. so to, to serve our interests. I mean, this is a, it's, it's an absolute disgrace. Yeah, I mean, Afghanistan, the reason they were flooded with weapons to begin with is because yeah. the CIA was running them in there to fight, <laughs> yes, fight the Russians. That's absolutely right, yeah. I mean, there's so many places we could go from that. Saddam was a bad guy. Mm-hmm. We all in agreement on that. Right. Had we not toppled Saddam and his regime and the Ba'athists were still there, you think ISIS would have ever been able to, to gain the strength that they did? Unquestionably, no. Right. There's no doubt about it because, y- you know, um, Saddam, whatever we can say about him, he was, he was a secular leader. And the Ba'ath party is a, is a secular party. And, uh, and, you know, one of the reasons why that brutality did exist is because that uh, is because they were they they did a lot to uh, undermine and uh, and absolutely obliterate uh, any Islamist activity in that particular country. Because the truth of the matter is, uh, Islamists were a greater threat to any Middle, Middle Eastern leader than they ever could be to us. And right. that's the reality of it. And that's why you know these secular leaders like Saddam, like Bashar al-Assad in Syria and, and others, they were so dead set against against the Islamists. You know, I read this really very fascinating account, one of the Al-Qaeda lieutenants that was captured. I remember that uh, reading that in his interrogation, you know, that he mentioned that he was being backed by Saddam. And uh, they came to find out after the fact that that was not true. But the reason why he said that is because he was trying to give the United States a reason to invade Iraq, because he knew that if we did, that these that the Islamists would be able to create a, a gain a stronghold there, right? Because there was no love lost between Saddam and Osama bin Laden. None at all. Osama bin Laden thought that Saddam was a infidel, right. living this lavish life. That's right. Uh, and Saddam saw him as this goat herder living in a cave, right. following these stupid prehistoric religious rules. That's right. Uh, like there was no. There's no collusion. No, the popular word today between those no, two. No, they were enemies. They absolutely. were absolute enemies. Yeah. Uh, and the way that 
people were able to, because even to this day, 17 years later, you pull most people on the street. Oh, yeah, Iraq had some hand in 9-11, right? They have no idea what it was. <laughs> yes. Or the Afghans and the Taliban had some hand in 9-11. Right, yeah. It's like, you ask people, well, what were the nationality of the hijackers? Right. right. Oh, they were Afghans, Iraqis. Like, wrong. Wrong, yeah. <laughs> Not a right. single one of that's them. That's right, yeah. The government built such a powerful narrative yeah. that 17 years later, it was still it's hard to overcome, right. just like in the popular vernacular. That's right, yeah. All right. So you joined the anti-war movement. You're a firm believer in protest, right? Yeah. The second or third episode I did, I was with my buddy Bruner that I served with in Afghanistan. It's a wow. black guy from Detroit. Amazing. And I asked him, I said, hey, man, how do you reconcile the idea? And the same question for you, that we were fighting ostensibly for American freedom, but you could get shot by the police during a traffic stop. Right. Right. That, like that there really is no... So first of all, I think it's a, it's fair to say it was all an illusion that we were fighting for right. American liberties, right? We right? I, yeah, but I understand. But even more so to the point, like as a black man, mm -hmm. how do you feel about like the current climate and this idea that peaceful protests are like the, the president is calling for people to be fired for peacefully right. protesting? There mm -hmm. are white supremacist rallies in the open, which are good people amongst right. them, according yeah, to certain absolutely, folks. Absolutely, yeah. How do you how does all that jive with you as a veteran? You know, for me, again, I think my grandfather taught me a lot about how, how really to, to understand this and about being a veteran is that, and you know, even here in the Hill District, this is the home to, this is actually the home, the Pittsburgh Courier, which was here in the Hill District, was actually home to the Double V campaign of World War II, which meant victory overseas uh, and victory at home. We were victory against the fascists overseas and, and victory against, you know, Jim Crow and racism here at home. And I think that much of the civil rights movement can really be rooted to the Second World War, where guys actually went overseas and they fought against fascism. And they came home, you know, having been forged as leaders by the fire of battle and deeply committed to, you know, love of country, but not... But, but love of country in a way that uh, that that love compelled them to be the conscience of the country and, and really did a lot to to lead us into the civil rights era. And, and I think for me, you know, it's absolutely the same is that, you know, in my you know, my grandfather taught me we, we, we in veterans, we learned what it means to do our civic duty. But what that does mean is, is that we have got to we have got to play our role in shaping and fashioning, you know, this democratic republic. In, in the spirit of love, you know, in the spirit of forgiveness, but we must really be the conscience of this state, that this becomes our work, especially, you know, now as a priest, to be the conscience of the state, be, I think becomes a very, very important part of the work, and that this is love of country. The people who, and I know now in this particular day and age, right, there's a lot of confusion about protests and all this, but what, but even what, what I can say about protesting is that, you know, when people look at riots in our cities, you know, they say some, you know, say, well, look at those ignorant people and all this and that. They don't appreciate they're all criminals, all this and that. Right. And of course, we understand. I can tell you from experience that this that this is born out of great frustration, generations of trauma that manifests itself. And, you know, in these riot, riots, which, as Martin Luther King said, is the language of the oppressed. But on the other hand, when people protest peacefully and they're criticized for that and people are trying to silence them and take away their constitutional right you have to understand that from the perspective of of the black man we think well well how do you win if we riot in the streets certainly we're condemned but if we protest peacefully 
also were condemned. So it really silences the voice. And I will tell you that anyone in this country who tries to silence the voice of nonviolent protest does this country a great disservice because that voice is going to find an outlet in some way. And we have to understand that the responsible thing to do, I mean, let alone the compassionate thing to do, the human thing to do is to listen to that voice. But even if that's not enough, if people aren't compassionate, if people, people can't appeal to a sense of humanity, then at the very least, the responsible thing to do is to give this nonviolent protest voice and to demonstrate that this is the way to motivate change in our nation. It's a great answer, man. <laughs> so let me ask you this. How do you, and I don't know if you can speak for your grandfather, but I'm sure you know his opinion. How, do you, how does he f- and you both feel uh, about players kneeling during the national anthem. You know, as a veteran, I mean, for me, this is, this is, and not to speak for my grandfather, but I'm sure he'd say the same. I mean, this is exactly what we fought for. In my travels to different parts of the world, as many of us have been, you know, there are parts of the world where there aren't, you know, such, such freedoms. And, you know, in, in the idea that we could actually live in a country where people could protest, to me, you know, even also taking a knee, and again, I'm speaking as a priest, is, a, is an act, it, it's a pious act. The act in of itself of taking a knee, we have always understand, understood to be a, a pious act. That in and of itself is not at all disrespectful. It contradicts what the tradition of the United States is. But these men are not spitting on our flag. They're not burning our flag. And they have a right to do that too. But they're not doing that. This is, in my understanding of things, a pious and respectful act of protest that demonstrate, you know, from their perspective, their love of country. Now, it's not... The protocols of the United States, it, it makes some people upset, but I will tell you this, that what really makes us special is, is that there is a place for those men here, that, that they are still our own. They are still our own. I will never forget when I was in graduate school, and this is from a different perspective that other people might relate to more. Uh, we, were, we were driving down the road. Uh, one of our classes actually took a visit to uh, the Civil War battlefield, Antietam, in Maryland. We were driving down the road, and uh, there was a woman from Russia who was there with us in the bus, sitting right in front of us, my friend and I, and, and on the side of the road, there was a house that flew a Confederate flag. And she hadn't known any of the context other than the visit that we had just had at the Antietam battlefield. From her perspective, this was the flag of rebels who rebelled against our government. When she saw the flag, she got, she got very angry and she, and she sat up and she said, why is there, uh, is there a rebel flag flying here? And uh, some people gave an answer that, well, you know, they can fly. They have a right to fly that flag. Nobody's going to. And, and, you know, she got so upset. She stood up. She pounded the seat. She said, in Russia, we would crush them. And, and when she said that, uh, we realized that whatever we thought about the Confederate flag, the fact that people could display dissent in this country without fear of reprisal made this country a very special place and an example to all of the world, which we were able to tell her in that moment, we do not need to crush dissenters in this country, but rather we must find way to hear them, to listen to them, to work with them. This is this, I think that there are so many people who are willing to, to give the Confederate flag that kind of voice. And it, and it alarms me that, that people are not willing to give that very same voice to to men who really are expressing their absolute patriotism, demonstrating their love for their country, for their people. And what I really do believe is a respectful act that contradicts the protocols of the flag. I'll be perfectly honest. It makes me very upset when I see players kneeling for national anthem, not because I feel like they're disrespecting the flag, but because they feel so strongly that the flag doesn't represent them as far as, you know, this 
the American ideal, right? That like everyone gets a fair shot. They, right. they don't. They don't believe that. That's right. They don't. And justifiably, they don't believe that, right? It's not without reason that they don't believe that. Mm-hmm. So that's what's upsetting to me is that, right? That, like, I appreciate that. I almost wish that they could take the flag back for themselves. You know what I mean? Like yeah. That flag doesn't, don't let it, these guys in Charleston or Charlottesville, don't let them, you know, be the arbiter of what that flag represents. You know what I mean? I like that belongs that. to all of us. It does, yeah. It's interesting and it's very diplomatic what you said about the Confederate flag. <laughs> yeah. I grew up in Alabama. Yeah. So to me, fighting for the U.S. Army, I feel very strongly the Confederate Army were traitors right. to my country, to my army. And I'm very glad my army beat their army. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. What is your personal feelings? Take the collar off for a minute. <laughs> Take the collar off, but leave on like the veteran hat. Yeah. How do you feel when you see a guy wearing like an 82nd Airborne hat marching amongst dudes with Nazi flags? I, I will tell you, I think they have, they're absolutely betraying our country. And, and, and I will tell you, as the grandson of a man who fought the Nazis, I, and, I don't, and I'm certainly not unique, how many millions of us are, are now the grandchildren and great-grandchildren and children of men and women who fought and bled uh, you know, against the Nazis. I cannot believe that after all of that, after all of the destruction of World War II, after what this nation suffered in World War II, that there are Americans who would stand with anything remotely associated with that ideology, with that re- regime, with that, with that period of world history. It's unfathomable, but I will tell you that when I do see it, I can't help but think how deeply ill, how deeply wounded, you know, these people must be. You know, any veteran that would do that, their sense of reality has been deeply uh, skewed. You know, their perception is has become heavily distorted. They've, they've, they've lost their way. You know, I see people on the streets of our inner cities uh, every day who've lost their way. When I see those men, I see men who have uh, also, men and women who have also lost their way. When you see a guy, ironically, of all the army units to be, the 82nd, the All-Americans, all American division, right? Yeah. The ones that jumped into Germany or into France on D-Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How hard is it for you as a priest and as, as a, a guy to, to forgive those guys? I, I will say that in those particular instances, that particular situation tests, I think it would test anyone, you know, in, uh, in their propensity to forgive. I will tell you that, you know, I've learned that, you know, human forgiveness absolutely has its limitations and that it is only by grace that we're able to, to forgive. For me, I think what's really important in that moment is that we really begin to understand that that man, whoever it is, it's wearing a, a, a you know, the 82nd Airborne patch and, you know, marching with Nazis that, that, that truly, truly he is, he is deeply wounded. Truly, truly he is, he is not tasted of joy or beauty in this world. Truly he, uh, he is alone and is seeking some form of uh, acceptance. For me, I think, you know, acknowledging the reality of his, his misery. I mean, what a miserable existence he no doubt has. I mean, there's no question in my mind that this is a man who is living a truly miserable existence. I think of my life and all of the joy that I have in my life, you know, the peace that I have in my life, and, and I feel so sorry for him that he's quite clearly, he so clearly doesn't have that, you know, in his life. For me, these are reminders that he's not only in need of, of forgiveness, but he's in deep need of healing, deep need of healing. And, and that's what, you know, for me, I pray for. The final thing on that is, is that um, I've learned it's so, uh, that it's good to have, you know, uh, enemies who are uh, this virulent because this hatred that, uh, that he spews, you know, it's one thing 
as a Christian to say, you know, love your enemies. But whenever you're confronted with such hatred, this is an opportunity to really live that gospel out in a, in a, in a very radical way. Uh, if we are committed to healing, forgiveness, reconciliation uh, with Iraq and Afghanistan, what better way to demonstrate its, its possibility by, by offering our love and, and restoration for our brothers and sisters here at home? For me, I try always to remind myself that they are still ours. I don't look at them as, uh, as foreigners. I don't look at them as monsters. But, you know, I really have learned to, to look at them as, as Americans, to look at them, you know, as our own and to, and to really consider their pain. You undoubtedly participated, if not directly did things in Iraq that you regret immensely coming right. home years later. Right. Is it harder to forgive that guy than it was yourself? I actually think it's, it's harder to forgive yourself. Uh, you know, and, it, and it's not only my personal experience. I, you know, I, th I think I've seen this with uh, many different people over the years. I know that I've seen this with vets in, in many different ways. You know, I, I've been I've been around vets who, uh, you know, who had maybe been drinking for a while, not really ever talked about anything when they were sober, but when they were really drunk, start to talk about, you know, experiences that they had or images that haunted them, nightmares that they continued to suffer from. And and I think that in those instances, it becomes so abundantly clear that, you know, these these men in most cases hadn't forgiven themselves for what they've done. And I think it is much harder. To forgive to forgive yourself and with all of it i i think that honestly it does require healing i mean in order to you know sincerely forgive yourself i think there's some healing that has to occur and so i i think that if a vet is really struggling with how do i really forgive myself then i i think the question is what is my path to heal and that understanding that forgiveness will be in that journey and that we'll find it in that journey. But to really set ourselves on, on a healing path becomes important. That's great. That's a good man. We're going we're gonna to mine that one for some gold. <laughs> um, so, okay, the final thing I want to talk about is the community. How, how do you, what, what, what's the phrase you guys use? Community-based oh, trauma? Uh, oh, well, we say community trauma. And then the, our project is trauma-informed community development. Trauma-informed community development. Okay. So how I discovered you, I guess, or found <laughs> out about you was you gave this amazing uh, TEDx Pittsburgh talk oh. about Say it one more time. Trauma-informed trauma -informed community, community development. development. Yeah. Uh, it was brilliant. And you brought it up because you come out there, you're in your collar, right? Yeah. You're in your priest get up. And then you mention yeah. your service in Iraq, right? And so yeah. immediately it's like, whoa, all right. Everything I thought I was about to hear out the window. Yeah. Like this is a, this Iraq vet who's right. talking about trauma. Right. Because to me as a, you know, a straight white male, right? Like you getting up and saying you're an Iraq vet, right? Like that's immediate legitimacy to your understanding of trauma. Right. Do you know what I mean? Sure. So like that, I like to think I've evolved some from that now, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think for a lot of people, no, like, yeah. it's like immediately it's like, whoa, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about, right? He's yeah. seen trauma. He was right. the first invasion of Iraq. Right. He's seen what true, like just truly destroyed communities look like. Right. So, and the way you kind of phrased it, uh, I'm not going to get this perfect, but you phrase it in a way of, yeah, I suffered trauma, my guy suffered trauma, but at the end of the year, we got to come home. Yeah. And these people were still dealing with this every day. That's right. Much like the people here in America are dealing with this exactly same trauma right. every day. Mm -hmm. That's right. To all the other veterans out there, can you just kind of unpack the community trauma force a little bit? Yeah, sure. And, and you know, and, and just what you said is absolutely true for me, really. It was my, it was my combat experience that 
shed light on this whole issue. I mean, you know, when I went overseas, we spent one year at war. When I came home, you know, I, you know, as a priest, you know, listening to people and, and you know, hearing their, and even offerings, you know, things like clothing and food for people, or I had these birth certificates. And what was so amazing was they'd start talking about a can of food, but they'd end up talking about a time they were raped. They'd start talking about a sweater. They'd end up talking about a time where they saw their, their, uh, their cousin gunned down, uh, you know, in front of them. I, I've talked to mothers whose, whose own sons were shot down in front of their faces. And, you know, it just became so abundantly clear that, you know, for those of us who spent one year at war, now we come home and find ourselves uh, to be surrounded by people in our own communities who have essentially spent their entire lives at war. You know, and the first time I ever heard of post-traumatic stress disorder was actually when I was in Iraq. You know, it was an army psychologist who came and talked to us when one of the men in our company had a, uh, had a breakdown. So they said, we, you know, we got to bring somebody in to talk to these guys. I'd never heard of it before. I knew nothing of it. And now coming home, seeing how much the veteran community, and I, and I think as a community of veterans, when we think about what is our great contribution to the world, I mean, there's, there's many. But I will tell you that one of the most valuable contributions that we, uh, the American veteran community, have made, not only to our nation, but to the world, is an understanding about trauma and the effects of it. Because... What has happened in the veteran community has informed so greatly, so much of what is happening, you know, not only in the United States, but around the world. For me, it was it was very much that way. What we learned, you know, in the Army about the consequences of, of trauma, the experience of trauma, now we've able to use and say, look, if this is what happens one year at war, what about our people? What about our children? What about our mothers? What about our friends? You know, what about our family? What about our brothers who are locked up down you know, down in the county jail, down the street, or, or, or the state penitentiary. You know, what have they been through? And that, as a veteran, I think placed us in a unique position to really have a very important conversation that's, in all honesty, needed to happen for a long time, but nobody was able to give it language. Nobody was able to really give it voice. And you know what I'm grateful for? You know, the veteran community for giving us language, for helping us give that voice, for, for, helping, uh, for helping model a way of, uh, of recovery, recovery and restoration to, to people who so desperately need it. Now, the challenge that I would make to the veteran community is now it's time for us to branch out. Now it's time for us not only to look after vets, you know, who are struggling with the traumatic experiences that they've had, but now it's time to take that and reach out to our children to our mothers, to our friends, to our brothers, and as and as veterans, help them live lives of restoration. Help them have hope. Help them help them recover. Help them, you know, by acknowledging that what they've been through absolutely impacts, you know, their health and well-being. Help them by demonstrating that there is a way, you know, there is a way back into the light. There is a way out of the darkness. You know, I think that that the veteran community is uniquely positioned to be great leaders, you know, in in, in our country for that purpose. And and I think that. That, that we in the veteran community should be very humbled and at the same time proud that um, that it is veterans above all else who have given us the, the language and the tools to address this, this, uh, this pain. That's great. So we'll close with kind of like a final question thought. Sure. There's a lot of, you know, this isn't the Vietnam generation, right? Right. Like we came back and we've been thanked to death a million times, yeah, right? right. There's a ton of empathy and sympathy for veterans in all of our experiences, right, all right, of the trauma. Right. Uh, that many have gone through, but there needs to be the acceptance of the fact that first, all volunteer force. Right. Two, they paid us. 
You know, right. we didn't do this. This right. wasn't compulsory, and they right. paid us money. Yeah, they, we true. had benefits. You yeah, know what I mean? Right. It, was like, it was a job right. that we did. Conversely, there are six-year-old children in some of these neighborhoods that have had their brothers gunned down in front of them That's too. That's right. That have don't receive near the attention or the outpouring of love and support for that the veterans community does. Um, you know, I'm so happy that you did raise that because it it really does pain me. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I've often felt guilty about in my ministry is, is that people show me very often, I think, so much more compassion and respect and appreciation from my experience than they do for that six-year-old that did see their, their, their brother uh, gunned down. I know there was six weeks ago or so, you know, there was... There was just some young kids who, you know, they were just up the street. They were around their cousin who was uh, shot and killed. You know, they were there. They, they saw, uh, you know, and they saw the aftermath. They're dealing with that. And, you know, who was there for them? And, you know, they didn't ask to be there. I mean, they didn't ask to be born in that uh, situation, grow, growing in those conditions. They didn't ask to be, you know, on that block. They didn't ask to be, you know, in the, in the middle of a crossfire or, or whatever the case might be. And yet they are. And I think this idea about, uh, you know, and, and believe me, I, I love the veterans and we have to take care of veterans. But this idea about because we're a veteran, my life is worth more than that little child is really uh, disturbing to me. It's painful for me. And I think that that's absolutely not what we fought for. You know, if we really say we fought for that little child, I think we've got a lot more fighting to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a, there is plenty of room in these communities for veterans to come out absolutely and participate in this healing process that's right they can heal together with these kids that's man. exactly you know what right I mean? that's exactly right uh, all right i think that's a good note to end on anything else you want to add man no it's, I been, just, a, it's uh, been a great episode it, it, well it's been such a joy to be with you nick oh yeah real quick so some of our listeners will be confused as i was at first that you are a priest Yet married with a kid. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. Because uh, I grew up in Baptist church, man. <laughs> right, so the yeah. Catholic and Orthodox thing is a little unfamiliar to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So can you just unpack that slightly? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so in, in the Orthodox church, I'm an Orthodox Christian priest. In the Orthodox church, uh, our priests can marry. And so we have married clergy. It's a, it's a very, very common practice. Most of our priests, in fact, are married. And uh, so we're not Catholics. We're different than the Catholic church. But uh, yeah, in the Orthodox church, we have married clergy. We have married, uh, obviously, with children and, and, the, and the wife and the, whole, and the whole bit. Do you have to be married? You do not have to be married. Well, the first time we met, you explained it. It's like, well, I had to be married before this because that's you right. can't date your flock well, or your that's potential right. flock. That's right. Yeah, this is a very important point that the church in her wisdom said that uh, you, you have to be married before you're ordained because if you're uh, ordained before you're married, then you can't marry because we, that's exactly right. We cannot have a priest dating his flock. That's, there's so many, you know, improprieties and, and ethical concerns that come from that. And so a lot of men who are ordained and they're not married, they, they actually go to live in monasteries as monks, actually. And, and, and that in and of itself to be, to, for even as a veteran to be, because uh, I had a chance where I went to seminary at St. Ticon's, there was a monastic community there. You know, some of them were veterans, in fact. And, uh, and in that monastery is where they found their healing. And so these, these monasteries can be, you know, oasis of great healing and, you know, in spiritual, um, in spiritual depth and, and, and feeding. So weird question. If you get ordained before you're married and then you decide a few years later, like, yeah, 
man, I really wish I had got married. Can you take a time out from <laughs> having a flock like to, yeah, to, date to date and get married and then go back to being a priest? Yeah, actually, the church says no. They say you, okay. you can leave the priesthood. Nobody will fault you for it. And you can still participate in the life of the church. But they just would say you just have to... Not you just be can't a be a priest. You just can't you, be a priest. Yeah. So there's no like uh, you can't no take backs. Right. Yeah. No timeouts. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, take no sabbaticals. Back. No That's right. Yeah. That's right. But if you're a priest and you decide, hey guys, I still love the church. I want to be active. I just yep. met a woman and oh, I want yeah. to be married. They're cool with oh, that. They're totally cool. You're with not. That. We, we have that. You're not some crazy sinner. No. Now. No. Get, not okay. at all. And in fact, there's a lot of uh, there's guys who've you know done that and, and you know they're they're doing uh, they're doing different things in like church organizations and you know they're very, they're still very active because you know the church honors that you know and uh, and so uh, yeah it's 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 really a beautiful it's it is a beautiful thing yeah. All right, sorry that was almost last question. Actual last question. Can you get divorced if you're a priest? You know that's a great question. If you're a priest and you get divorced. In the Orthodox Church, you have to step down from being a priest. You can still be active in the church, you know, but the church is very, you know, hard on men who are priests. Uh, I don't want to say hard. It's not us the wrong word, but but we in the priesthood, we we hold ourselves to, you know, a higher standard, you know, and uh, and and certainly for any priest that causes divorce, you know, in his family, you know, the church prescribes you know, very strict uh, repentance, I would say, you know, life of repentance, because, because this isn't, this isn't how we, we have to be there for our families. Before we're a priest to our parish, we're husbands to our wives, sure. we're fathers to our children, and the church is very serious about If you can't that. keep your house in order, you're not going to be able to keep your church in That's order. That's right. Like, That's the scriptures say. Yeah. But if you become a widower, yeah, you can still, you can be, still oh, yeah, remain you're, a priest. You're okay, yeah. Yeah. that was no fault of your own or yeah, anything. Yeah, sure, that's right. Necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks again, dude. This has been great. Oh, really appreciate you. it. Oh, it's great. Uh, we got to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thanks thanks so much. listening to this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe, like, rate us on iTunes, Blueberry, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app.